You're on with Barbara. Hey, 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 it's me, Barbara Corcoran, and this is 888-BARBARA. That's right, it's time to answer all your burning questions. From the boardroom to the bedroom, nothing is off limits. So listen up for some advice on how to live your best life. Each week, I'll be answering all your burning questions, and sometimes I'll be asking them too, interviewing some of the greatest folks I know to learn the secrets of their success so I can share them with you. I've never agreed with Kevin O'Leary on an opinion about anything. Not one thing. He says left, I say right. He says up, I say down. So I thought, who better to ask to be here today, other than Kevin O'Leary, to answer the 888 Barber questions? I thought, what if I'm giving people bad advice and Kevin's got the best advice? So here he is with me today. He was great on my other podcast, Business Unusual. Hey, catch that if you haven't heard what Kevin was like as a kid. You're going to be disappointed. I have no doubt. Listen here to Kevin answering the questions all wrong or maybe right. We're going to have a very different spin on all the questions coming in. My name is Brian and I'm calling from Munich, Germany. I'm 19 years old and I've been so inspired by you for a long time. I listen to every one of your podcasts. From a young age, I've always had very big dreams for myself. However, my parents and siblings make it very known that they do not think I can deliver. Recently, this has caused our relationships to become very bad because of how resentful I am towards them. What is your advice on how to deal with close family that don't have faith in you and your dreams? You know, it's a sad one. It's very sad. I think, first of all, that's a very broken relationship between a parent and a sibling and and a you know a brother or sister. I think what has to happen here is this individual has to strike out on their own and tell their parents, "Go fuck yourself." I'm going to go. Oh my god! I'm going to have to delete that from my podcast. You know exactly what I'm saying. This is ridiculous. Even talking that way to a child is just something really wrong about that. Mm. Well, here's my advice to you, Brian. I think you should use the insult uh, for your motivation. Nothing is more powerful than somebody damning you to hell and saying you can't do something because it can get your ire up and you get out there and you say, I'll show you. Come back as the victor and they'll have to acknowledge it. And if they don't, you can acknowledge it for yourself. You're right, Barbara. Brian is the winner. Uh, But we haven't heard the parent side of the story. Yeah, yeah. But I can just tell it's bad. Hi, Barbara. It's Dawn from Maryland. I've been married twice and I just wonder, should I get married again? Thanks. Well, listen, I'm going to take a stab at this, Barbara, because I have various feelings about marriage. Um, I've always felt that marriage, while it can be very euphoric in the beginning when romance and love are involved, really displays its true colors after about three years. It becomes a business. Because the reason men and women or significant others get together and form family units is to help themselves economically and emotionally. But the fact is, it's the pillar of financial strength that keeps a marriage together. If you're talking about a third marriage, the first two tell the story of what's going to happen to the third. Why bother? Why not just have some frenemies? To my ears, Dawn doesn't sound at all like she is even excited about getting married. I don't know why she's asking the question. But what went wrong in the first marriage? What went wrong in the second marriage? And why would you want to repeat it? Barbara, I want to bring a point up I think you may or may not agree with. But if you look at, and I did this little 
study on divorce over a seven to 14 year period. Why would you study divorce? Well, because I was very interested in answering this question. And I had a good friend who was a divorce lawyer, had been for 35 years. So I asked him, don't bring up the individual cases because he did a lot of work with very wealthy people. 50% of unions end in divorce between seven and 14 years. That's a stat that's been pretty steady for a long time. It's not infidelity that breaks these unions apart. In most cases, he attributes it to financial pressure. Oh, I'm sure. Even the super rich. That's always been the case. One partner is not in sync with the other in terms of their spending, investing habits, or whatever it is, and that brings such a fissure to the family that they divorce for the reasons of money. So I'm just wondering if that hasn't played a role in Don's case. If you're having trouble in your marriage, look at money first not infidelity. Most marriages can survive infidelity. Hi, Barbara. Um, My name is Diana, and I'm from Maryland. My question is about what I should do with my career. I'm sort of at this crossroads where I've been in a pretty comfortable, family-friendly job for a few years, and I'm just feeling like it's not fulfilling and I don't know what to do. Should I take a risk or should I stay in a career that's been pretty family friendly, even though it won't ever be that lucrative? I've just been so indecisive and I don't know what to do. I just need some good advice. Thanks. What's not fulfilling? And how about just trying to get a better position where you're working now? Oh, that's a good point. I told my daughter the same thing after her first year of work. You know, she came to me complaining about her status in the organization and her pay. After one year? No. I said, we're not even going to have this conversation until we've gone 18 months because uh, and we did. We had the conversation again, actually, after 24 months, two years. And then I said to her, you know, Savannah, you've achieved quite a bit. You uh, need to get a raise. I'm going to tell you what to say. But really, it's all about what you've delivered because you set some goals for yourself. You've achieved them. And now... You have to get a raise. And she was quite successful, not as much as I wanted her to get. Every father wants her daughter to make more. But she moved up in terms of two positions in her job title and a very significant... And a raise in one? All at once. And this is why I'm going back to, to this caller, because you have to set goals for yourself. Generally... I don't like to look at resumes where people have moved every 12 months. I like to see a two-year commitment. It's nice, but it's so forgivable today. It seems to me as though it's a typical resume But you're okay with a 12-month I don't like it, but I tell you, most of the resumes that come in, people hop around, especially when they're young. I don't mind it at all. I used to really be bothered. Well, I'm still old-fashioned in the respect that I think you should show the organization what you can do, and that takes at least 24 months. I said to her, look, you're not going anywhere until you really prove yourself here. It'll be the stepping stone, and she has. She's now in her third year and looking at another race. So I like to tell people, set a goal for yourself. Once you achieve it, go point out to your superiors that you did exactly what you'd set out for yourself and for them and that you'd like to be compensated accordingly. You know, Kevin, I get a lot of people that call in and are stuck in jobs and they seem to put enormous value over a family-friendly environment as though they are afraid are to leave That's a mistake. because they can go to their kids' soccer games and what have you. But what do you think about that? My impression is that most jobs today are family-friendly. Things have changed. And for people to get stuck in a job just because they think they're understood, like this lady Diana, I think is a mistake and it holds people to a job much longer than they wish to be. You're right. Most bosses 
businesses, most people that are running both entrepreneurial organizations or large corporations understand people should be measured by their ability to achieve tasks. How they do it doesn't really interest me. As long as they achieve them, I don't care where they do it from, as long as A, they achieve them, B, they achieve them, and C, they do it on time. And after that, you can be eclectic. You know, you can work in different ways. Most organizations are bending that way as long as they achieve their goals. And I think it's a good thing in America, frankly. Of course. What's wrong with that? lifestyles have changed so much. Even people that tell me, look, I want to work all night. I'm a night owl. Okay, I'm cool with that. Let me give one little piece of advice to Diane. Diane, I think you're going to have a hard time asking for anything, and you're going to have to practice being aggressive. That's what I hear between every word you say, that you're not aggressive and you're not confrontational. So I would suggest you go out and see what other jobs are out there, if even online, so you know there's other opportunities. And then you go look at yourself in a mirror and practice saying what you need to say to move on, get a raise, or to get the new promotion, or to argue your worth. But I think with the way you represent yourself, you're not going to get anything because I'm not convinced listening to you that you believe in yourself one bit. That's at the core of your issue more than being stuck in the job. I think you have to be able to learn how to advocate for yourself. And I don't think it happens overnight. You got to practice on it. I was like the quietest, lowest key kid in the world. And now I'm a big mouth. Why? Because I practiced for so many years being a big mouth. You got to get out there and practice or just even practice in front of your family and friends to get accustomed to the sound of your own voice being aggressive. That's all. Hi, Barbara. My name is Dustin. I'm the owner of American Awning and Sign out of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I'm calling you because I need your advice. Um, It's not necessarily a finance question. Um, It's more of like a moral dilemma question. We have been operating for almost two years, and our employees range from seven to nine employees, mostly full-time, but we have a few part-time that come in and help us. Right now, the construction season is a little low just because of the the weather. We're not installing as much. We are down a few installers because no one wants to work in this cold weather. So our income is a little lower as as well. I have a couple full-time employees. They're not producing enough. So basically we're not billing enough to pay for their salaries. How can I go home at night after telling an employee that we have to cut their hours to 32 or 30 hours a week? I don't know if I can look someone in the eyes and tell them they're gonna make less money this week or next week. But we're not a charity. We're a business and we're trying to grow. I just don't know if they're going to understand. And and my fear is they're going to quit or they're going to resent me. I just don't know how to do it. I'm hoping to get your advice. So actually, as I listen to Dustin's details about that business and the seasonality aspect of it, basically he has overcapacity in terms of labor. He's hired too many people. What he needs to have is a full-time that he's you know, getting the full 40 to 42 hours a week out of. If he went down to one person, he'd get that. And then go into a part-time contract with the others as the seasonality drifts through the business. He has not tailor-made his business model correctly because of the seasonality. He detailed about wintertime and putting up signs, etc. The bigger problem is if he doesn't have what it takes to actually make hiring and firing decisions, he shouldn't be running the business. He maybe could be an investor in it, but he's got to get somebody that has the guts to tell the truth to these people. One of them has to go, in my view, and the other can be put on a part-time basis or find work elsewhere. Let me ask you this, Kevin. The first time you fired someone in your own business, the first time you had to confront firing someone, taking their livelihood away, 
Did it come naturally to you or was it a tough thing to do? No, it was tough. But I have, in my career, as I grew my, particularly my consolidation in the educational software business, ended up firing tens of thousands of people. And I learned the most important thing to do in that whole process was to set up a system where A, you explained why it was happening, B, you found out and made sure you compensated them very fairly because what I learned when you're dealing with that many people, they are going to go into the market and talk about you being fair or not. Mm. And in my case, we made sure that we compensated them and found counseling services to help them find other jobs. And by the time the fourth year came around, as we were buying companies firing the people we didn't need and just keeping the developers because we had our own distribution, our reputation was very good. And many of them came back and worked for us two or three years later Mm -hmm. as they moved around the market because we ended up being the largest educational software company in the world. So these people came back that wanted to be in the educational business. Well, that, that addresses one of his concerns that the people wouldn't like him, they might not come back. And you found that they did if they're treated fairly, but no one goes into a firing situation initially as a boss, a new boss, and feels comfortable firing people. So here's what- it's tough as hell. I would say to Dustin this, he's a very nice guy. We could hear that in his voice. He has a conscience. He wants to be a good guy all the way, but he's got to learn to fire, and that's an ability you can certainly learn. But I would say to Dustin that he could trade on how nice he is. You could tell he's a nice guy. So if he sits down with a group of people, a one-on-one, and says, hey, listen, The business isn't right. We don't have the billable hours that we used to have. So we're going to have to cut the hours that everybody's working. And I could either guarantee you 20 hours or if you want, you could leave here and you could get a full-time employment somewhere else. But that's the best I could do for you. I don't think the firing for Dustin is going to be nearly as tough as he thinks. I think people are going to get it. I think he's going to learn that firing isn't the boogeyman he thinks it is. And he's going to do a good job at it because people loved me. Everybody loved me who worked for me. And I was able to, for a while, get away with murder, frankly, because I was liked. But in the initial time, people took it in the chin and they said, we understand. And they walked out the door. It happened. And so I think we've got to give Justin a chance to realize it's not as bad as he thinks. Just go do it. And people are going to be more loyal than he thinks. I'm too worried you're sending out too much of a kumbaya It's not a kumbaya. It's trading on what's good. I get it, but I would rather have employees respect me. And you've got to be fair because that comes back to hurt you economically. Businesses are about making money. They're binary. Either you make money or lose it. But you're way too kumbaya. I am not. I'm the best fire I know and it's about how you do it. And I think this guy's got a good shot at doing it. I'm pretty good at it too. And I think I take a different approach. There is a reason I'm called Mr. Wonderful. You know that. (laughs) What is that reason? There's truth in advertising. (laughs) Hi, Barbara. My name's Jenna and I'm from Chesapeake and I have this reoccurring problem in my friendships that is kind of getting in the way of me, like making and keeping friends. I'm a pretty ambitious person, but when I reveal like my ambitions to other people and like how I turn a dream into reality, at some point my friends get kind of jealous. And I have this one friend in particular that I'm having issues with. We've been friends since high school, but we like had a fight and then we broke up and then we made up like a year later. And I thought she was happy for me when I finally accomplished another dream that I had. She was still jealous. And I don't really know if I should drop this friend or if I should, like, you know, um, confront her about it, which hasn't been very effective in the past. If you could give me some tips on dealing with people who become jealous of you when you become successful, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. 
Let me say something to Jenna. First off, it sounds like you're a high school girl. It sounds so young, the way you're expressing your problem and how you're dealing with it. My advice would be to you to talk to your friend directly and say, hey, what's up? I'm going to be successful. This is what I'm doing. Is there going to be room in your life for me? What's bugging you? What's in the way? I suspect you haven't really confronted in a very direct way. And that's the only way you get communication going and keep a friendship going. If you have to watch what you're doing and fearful of hurting people and they're not approving you, that's not a friendship. You got to move on and find some happy people to be around. One more thing. If I was your friend listening to what you said, I would think, what's in it for me, this friendship? You might not have anything in the friendship for your friends if you're successful. So maybe what you ought to do is share your success in a different way, not by telling them how you dream and want to be terrific. Get them tickets out to a restaurant. Invite them for a long weekend vacation. Let them see the benefit of having a friend who's doing very, very well. And that will sweeten it up a little bit as well. Well, I have different advice, Uh, Jenna. I want to talk about your presentation skills, which will be affecting you in life in many ways. You should listen to this podcast a second time about what you read to us. Think about when you make a presentation like the one you just gave Barbara and I, that you want to be concise. You want to bring your point forward quickly. I thought you could have done that better. But the constant use of word like is very high schoolish, very immature. And yet you are bringing a very mature topic forward about the jealousy of friends and your understanding the challenges of keeping it all together, the social issues involved. That's very mature. But throwing like in every third word is just, I don't like it. Got a bad boss? Can't get a raise? Want to start your own business and can't get off the block? Come on over to Business Unusual, my other podcast where I give straight talking business advice. That's Business Unusual. Subscribe and catch up. We got great, great interviews and material there. Hi, Barbara. I'm, I'm a student from Kazakhstan, and I studied in the UK, and I don't have a lot of information about the US, and the reason I'm interested is because my father left an inheritance, uh, which I'm about to uh, receive. It's around a significant amount. Well, not maybe for you, but for me, several millions, I guess. And I'm thinking of how can I get into... U.S. business will be the best way for me to invest. To inherit that much money, and by the way, uh, $2 million is significant when you think about the average American family, the country you're thinking about coming to, it sounds like, makes about $58,000 a year. You're a very wealthy person in that context. The challenge you have is you're so young, you don't have the experience on how to invest it. So what I highly recommend to you is you find an advisor uh, that will protect you against yourself because what happens to young people is they don't understand that the risk inherent in getting too concentrated, in other words, the biggest free lunch in investing is diversification into bonds, into stocks, into other things that produce income, but you don't know how to buy those yet. And it took me a long time to learn myself. Good news is most large American institutions, banks included, have advisory services that cost about 0.45% up to 90.9% or 1% in some cases. So you're probably going to make 6% a year if the markets are kind to you over a long period of time. You're going to pay 1% to your advisor and clear 5% of $2 million. That's more than 99% of people make in America, my friends. So Are you recommending he does that? Comes to America and gets an advisor and lets the advisor invest well, wherever his money? He, I don't know what the advisory business is in Kazakhstan. 
I'm sure there are advisors there, but I think the largest market, the most liquid market on earth is right here in the United States. It sounded like to me he was interested in the U.S., so if he's coming here, I'd definitely put an advisor in place. Well, I would do something totally opposite to that myself. Don't tell him to buy real estate, Barbara, No, no, please. no, I'm not. I don't think you should do a damn thing with your money. I think you ought to lock it up and not lose it. And I don't think you should be telling people you even have it to invest because people will find you. And you'll hear the best pitches in the world as to how they're going to make money with your money. Come, get a job, make a living, pretend you don't have the money. Two years from now, you'll have a much better understanding of what you're in for, what you should do for the money, who you should trust. Because in the end, when it comes to not losing the money, never mind even making money, but just not losing it, you have to trust and how do you make that assessment when you're so young and naive? So come, get a job, get some maturity on your back, and then decide how you might spend that money. But I would be very careful, and I would lock it up away from you and away from everybody else. Hey, Barbara. My name is Rafael. I'm calling you from Tampa, Florida. I'm 24, and I have a really hard time with my finances. Pretty much need to have like a good education from my parents about money. We were raised in a really, really tight budget, so pretty much all the money we got, we treated like we were going to be poor again. So, so I was just wondering what advice you have for me. You got any tips to save money or to invest it in a better way? Uh, invest it in a better way when pretty much you live paycheck by paycheck. Anyway, Barbara, I love you, and I'm a huge, huge a matter of you. Hey, listen, at 24, I'll tell you what I was doing about money. I was bouncing checks all over Manhattan. I would write checks for this and that, never balance my checking account, and I couldn't repeat visiting the same stores because I knew who I was. I was terrible with money. I didn't know how to manage it. And why was I terrible? Because I had never been exposed to it. Lucky for me, I started making more money than checks I could bounce. If not for that, I think it's, honestly, it'd still be bouncing checks. Of course, this is not the right answer. No, it's not really. And I'm gonna, okay. I, I will give Raphael the right answer. He's come to the right place. Here's what you have to do. And I found this to be true in every country, every language, every geography. People buy too much crap. Everybody does that. You can check your crap index by going into your closet and looking at all the clothes you don't wear. You bought, you wore once, you never wore again. The truth is I could save you 10 to 15% a week by just being on your shoulder saying, don't buy that crap, Raphael, don't buy that crap. <laughs> Every time you buy something, you should ask yourself, do I really need this? Do I really need to pay $2.80 for a cup of coffee when I can make it for 15 cents myself? Oh, oh my god! I'm serious. Aye, aye, aye. I can save people 15% all day long, and then they take this money and they save it, and it compounds at 6 to 7% a year during a whole lifetime. And if you do that, you'll find, even if you're only making the average income in America of $50,000, $60,000 a year, you can retire a millionaire by just saving 10 to 15% of your paycheck each week, which is very easy. Now, Barbara, maybe you couldn't do that, but most people can because you too have too much crap. I've been to your place. You got a lot of crap. <laughs> oh, God. Um, I had very good advice when I was about 28 that kind of turned me around, even though I was still not managing my money well at all. Someone had recommended to me that I put my credit cards aside. I couldn't get rid of them. I was living on credit card then, especially in bad times. But someone recommended to me that I pay cash for only one week. And I paid cash for everything in one week. And I was shocked at where my money was going. That, for me, was probably the only education I ever got in managing money, just seeing where my money went in one given week. And it turned me around a bit. It made me feel like I had control of my money. And then I started paying off my lowest credit card balance 
balances first until I was able to pay up all those credit card balances. But I was late to learn it. So give yourself a break. How old did you say you were? You say you're 24 and you didn't learn it from your parents. You got plenty of time to learn. But definitely ignore Kevin's advice. You won't have a good life. You won't have nice clothes to wear. You won't really say how wonderful this life was when you finally die. Forget about it. Oh, that's ridiculous, Barbara. No, it's You've not. done it's a not. huge disservice. No, no, no. Raphael. No. Come on. She is the side of darkness and evil. I am the light. Remember that. <laughs> oh, God. Hi, this is Rhonda from Merida, California. When is it appropriate to have relations after being widowed? Okay, so her husband dies. Yes. There has to be a period of mourning out of respect. I would think a 90-day period of mourning and celibacy would be appropriate. 90 days. How did you arrive at that? I just thought in terms of, you know, the shock of a death and the families and friends and all the people that want to take you out for dinner and stuff to to help you with your mourning. I don't think you want to be bringing dates out at that time. I just think it would be inappropriate. And maybe people would think, well, this is a little crazy. She's just lost her husband a week ago and she's dating somebody. I don't think so. I think three months is reasonable. What do you think? Not at all. I think the minute after your husband passes away, the minute you're attracted to someone, raises your eyebrow, and you think, hmm, he looks interesting, you're already ready. No, there's no period of mourning that's dictated by anyone. It's it's nonsense. If you're lonely and you're attracted to someone, go for it. The only way to get over loneliness is love. Let's take it a step further because she said relations, which obviously can mean sex, right? First date, you're interested. That's exciting. You got that euphoria. I think it's wonderful. But I'm not advocating sex on the first date. I'm saying, say, look, I'm interested in you and I'd like to see you again. Let's go out maybe on Friday. Maybe this is a Wednesday date. And then it's really passionate, but we're still not ready for the big move. I like the third date for the election. That's what I think is appropriate. Action on the third date, really, that builds momentum crescendoing with a great outcome and it's the beginning of a new relationship. And of course you're agreeing with me, Barbara. That's the way to do it. I'm being entertained by you. I'm not agreeing with you. But (laughs) I think the minute you feel like you want to have sex, you should just go and have sex. She's a single woman, even though you call her a widow. She has no commitment. And just make yourself happy. Life's too short. What if the next month you're in the coffin? You're going to say, gee, I shouldn't have waited. No, no, no. You just got to go on and live your life. All this other stuff is nonsense. But the most nonsensical part is that you're giving love advice. I'm immensely romantic and my advice is taken by (laughs) millions of millennials. I really am a very good study on how you should do courtship. You should listen to me. I would give you some great advice because I think the advice you're giving now is just (laughs) catastrophically bad. You need to build momentum in a relationship. You want to have a little something, a certain je ne sais quoi, as I call it, the little magique, the little something you're waiting for, that something that the next date and may deliver. And what happens deliver. after that big third date? Go By on. then, you know a lot about somebody. You've actually got the, what I would call the pillars of building something special. Uh, listen, you know, Mr. Wonderful knows. This is how you do it, Barbara. You know, you started out earlier on this podcast yeah. saying that you think that a marriage after three years becomes a yeah, business relationship. It does. Okay. But I'm talking about the euphoric period at the beginning. I'm giving you advice to really milk as much euphoria as you can get because don't worry, reality is going to strike and the marriage is going to turn into what it really is, a pillar of financial stability. And that has merits too. 
But, you know, you've got to really think through. You can't tell me you have the same euphoria after 20 years that you had the first time you met. I don't know. I've met a lot of couples that could keep that going. No, it's a different kind of love. It's a love built on respect and financial strength. You're suggesting it not be romantic. I know many couples that are intensely romantic. I also deal with a lot of friends. A lot of my friends have been divorced three times. And I'm giving them advice saying you should not get married again. Hi, Barbara. My name is Troy, calling from Newark, Delaware. I was just wondering... I'm a 22-year-old college student, and I'll be graduating soon and going to physical therapy school, and I do have a considerable amount of debt, and I'm also really big on investing, and I was just wondering if I should continue investing in my mutual funds and stocks at a young age when it's most opportune, or if I should focus more on paying off my student loan debt any credit card debt I have, et cetera. Thank you so much. Troy, I paid off my student loan debt when I guess it was six years once I was working. You know what I did? I ran up credit card debt as a result of that. I felt free and I just charged a lot more. I felt entitled. If I had it to do over again, I would just pay that over the whatever lengthy period of time I had to pay it over and keep it because it kept me in check somehow. I think it depends on your personality. Now, I know Kevin's going to tell you, pay off the uh, student loan immediately and get your head straight. Are you going to say that? I am, and I'll tell you why. Student loans have actually gone to floating rate, and uh, while it's very easy to service them now as rates are low, uh, what people do is they don't take the opportunity to realize Wait a second, even if the student loan rates are 4 to 5%, which is where they sort of are right now, you know how hard it is to find a fixed income security that gives you 4.2%? Pretty well impossible to find. So the way you got to look at it is if you could pay that debt off faster, get rid of it, you could then invest in things that maybe be better for you because you're actually giving somebody more than you can make in the market. Nobody can make 4.2% on a bond anymore. It's virtually impossible as you're taking huge risk or duration risk. I'm a big advocate now when you get these floating rates at 4.2, 4.3, I think I saw one that was as high as 6.2 because they hadn't paid anything off in five or 10 years. I'd get rid of that student loan, particularly if you have money, and then put it to work. Most things you can buy, the market's giving you 2.3% dividend yield right now if you just bought the S&P. I don't like debt. I would certainly want to get out of it. And this whole thing of using debt to just, you know, for you, Barbara, put little shackles around you from spending habits. Oh, not everyone has that same discipline, though. Well, I think that's, that's the, really the big question. Does he have the discipline to pay this off and start investing for the long term? So don't give advice by saying, you know, go get credit cards. Shame on you, Barbara, really. So this is uh, terrible. Okay. There you have it. Very well. And that's all the questions we have time for today. I hope you found the advice helpful. Think I got it right? Think I got it wrong? Have an idea for a great guest? Come on, give it to me. Tweet me at Barbara Corcoran using the hashtag 888Barbara and keep those questions coming into the 888Barbara hotline. You can subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't be coy. Leave a review for the show at Apple Podcasts and keep the party going on. We'll see you next time. 888 Barber is produced by Sandy Smolens for Audiation. And Lila Mann is our executive producer. Audiation.